0: We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning, everybody. And um, as we transition from the last verse of chapter 1 into chapter 2, what I think we really need to pay attention to is the way that John is about to unpack what it means to have fellowship with one another in the Son and by His precious blood that's shed. And it's going to relate to this concept of sin, okay, and the concept of his word. The word of Jesus abiding in us. Okay, so 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. Then after I read this and go to a few cross-references, I'm going to explain the Gnostic beliefs that John is fighting against once again. Because it's going to be key to understanding what it means to live in the light and not live in the darkness or walk in darkness. So 1 John 1, verse 10, it says, If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. To deny your own sinfulness and your own need for Jesus and to deny the fact that you and I have made mistakes is to say that we don't really believe the gospel because the gospel message of Jesus is the solution to a problem that if you deny, then you're saying you don't need the solution being Jesus. So how can you believe in him? What are you believing in him to do? What are you believing? He saves you from. And so his word is not in those who deny their own sinfulness and needs for need for Jesus. So, actually, I said I would go to cross-references first. Let me explain the Gnostic beliefs up front. John is fighting against four specific lies in the early church. Okay, the first lie is that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. He really did. He took on human nature. He took on human flesh. He actually subjected himself to, to the human condition so that he could represent us as our mediator of a new covenant. So that he can uphold our end of the covenant, um, the new covenant that he establishes as our high priest. So there's a lot of reasons why Jesus has to come in the flesh. His his humanity and his his fleshly body wasn't just an illusion. It was real. He really took on human nature. The second lie that John is fighting against is um, the, the concept that spirit and matter are completely separate. They have no crossover. They don't overlap. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do in the flesh. No, that's a lie. The flesh and the spirit... That which is of the material world does have crossover and overlap with the spiritual. So to draw a dividing line where Scripture does not, and I'm not saying there aren't differences and there aren't, you know, different things regarding different natures. But when it comes to the the nature of spirit and matter, there is is an actual uh, connection between the two. They are related in some capacity, Scripture wants us to understand. And so... What we do in this material body with this life matters. What I do with this fleshly body matters. There is another lie that John is pushing against and fighting against, which is the other extreme of this. So one extreme says, well, since there's a clear dividing line between spirit and matter, then, you know, it doesn't matter what we do. Pun intended. It doesn't matter what we do in this body because at the end of the day, my spirit is saved by Jesus. I'm a spirit son of God. And so what I do in the body doesn't matter. That's a lie. The other extreme says since there's a dividing line, we should be so um, focused on the physical that it actually, um, it's called asceticism. It goes like this. It's the teaching that a person can attain or achieve a higher spiritual state or a higher moral condition. How? Well, by practicing self-denial, by abstaining from fleshly things, by, by mortifying the flesh in an abusive way. In other words, one extreme says the flesh doesn't matter, live how you want. The other extreme says it matters so much that it affects your spiritual condition and moral state and and your standing in the sight of God, so much so that we need to actually obsess over abstaining from things that have anything to do with the material world. In other words, it paints matter and the material world in an evil light to say have nothing to do with that which is material and that which is of this earthly realm because it it's it's evil, it's all evil, and spirit is good, matter is bad. And that is also a lie John is pushing against, okay? Either way, there are lies pervading the early church, and John is addressing all of them uh, very methodically and very well. He's doing a great job. But as we talk about this concept of what does it mean that the word of Jesus abides or dwells in a person, Because he says those who deny their sinfulness and their need to be cleansed and forgiven, that's evidence that they don't have the word of God in them. If you go to John 5, 37, John's gospel, Jesus says something similar. It's a lot of parallels between this little passage and the entire letter of 1 John. So John 5, 37, Jesus says, The Father who has sent me has himself borne witness, testimony about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you. Okay. Jesus makes a statement about the the listeners, those who are in the crowds, those who reject his message, those who reject his person and who he claims to be and everything he's saying. The fact that they're doing that is evidence that they do not have the word of God abiding in them like they think. And some of these people are religious teachers and scribes and Pharisees and those who are masters of the Torah. And Jesus is accusing them of not only not being masters of their law, but not even knowing and having that word abiding in them. Being the word of God in the, in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible. So you don't believe the one whom God has sent. That right there is the key reason why Jesus can look at the crowds who don't believe and say, you guys don't have the word of God abiding or dwelling in you. If you did, you would believe in me and what I'm saying and the testimony I'm giving about myself that the father confirms by the works of the spirit that the prophets testify to, that the Bible, the Hebrew Bible testifies to. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And actually, it's those very scriptures that you're looking to for eternal life, your adherence to the law, they actually bear witness about me. So you're stopping at the law and the word of God As if it's sufficient enough to save you. Well, the law isn't capable of saving or declaring or making a person righteous. Why? Because none of us meet the law. We're the issue. I fall short of the perfect standard of God found in his law. And so I... There's a hair hanging down. It's going to annoy me the whole time. I, if I don't meet the law of God and if I fall short of his perfect standard, right... um, that means I need someone to help me fill in the gap. Help me to fix that. I lost my train of thought there for a minute because I was focusing on the hair. Uh, so he says, you search the scriptures. Look, that's what I was, That's my train of thought. Thank you for coming back. That the the law cannot save. It can only point you to the one who can. The law is sufficient to reveal to you the one who can bring salvation. The law can't make you righteous or save you because we aren't able to follow it perfectly. Jesus can. And so he's saying, you know, the scriptures that you are finding a sense of confidence and righteousness in, eternal life isn't found in that because you fall short of it. These these scriptures bear witness about me. And so the very fact that he goes, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he has people who are refusing to come to him, who don't believe in his testimony and the signs he's doing and the words he's proclaiming. And the reason is that they don't already have their knowledge of God's word truly abiding in them. It's just surface level intellectual information and understanding. There is a way to know things about God without knowing him through that. right? There's a way to know the factual information about God and not have a relationship with him. And that's exactly what he's accusing lovingly. He's accusing his hearers of doing. Right? They know about God in the Torah, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the in the Hebrew Bible, but they don't know him if they did. And if his word truly was dwelling in them, like David says in the Psalms, uh, he essentially says, I, I've stored up your word so that I may not sin against you. That's, he's saying exactly what verse 38, Jesus is accusing the crowds of not having. David is saying... I, I desire for your word and I pursue your word to be, you know, um, abiding in me. I store it up in my heart so that I might live it out and not sin against you. And Jesus is accusing the people of not doing that, not having the word of God fill their hearts. Okay. So again, it's not only that the fact they're not coming to Jesus proves they don't have the word of God abiding in them. But they're not coming to him because they don't have the word of God truly abiding in them. As as much as they are instructors of the law, as much as they are people who... And again, I can't remember the crowd who specifically Jesus is addressing in John 5. The point is that from the very beginning of the establishment of the nation of Israel, and all the way back in the garden, God's desire has been for his people... To adhere to or keep his word. Store it up in their hearts. Store his word in their hearts. uh, Mary, in uh, the, you know when Jesus turns water into wine. The wedding at Cana in John chapter uh, 2. Because it's before Nicodemus in chapter 3. In John chapter 2, they run out of wine at the wedding. And Mary tells the servants who are tending to the, the ceremony things and all that stuff he she tells them hey do whatever he says whatever Jesus says and it's really that simple it's really that simple to have his word abiding in you is to do what he says and to value what he says and to apply and live out and build your life on what he says. I know I've belabored that point. John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is like, almost verbatim, the different ideas that John is going to tackle in his letter in 1 John. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. You're supposed to think, you know, Ishmael, Isaac, that distinction between Hagar and Sarah, those who really belong to Abraham, the true seed of the woman. So if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. The pres- the assumption there is that people need to be set free from something. And he's already said they need to be set free from sin. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, right? And ultimately, uh, in the new creation, the presence of sin itself. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Like, physically you descend from Abraham. No doubt about it. And yet you seek to kill me. Do you know why? Jesus says because his word finds no place in them. This has parable of the sower written all over it. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because when we get to 1 John, there's a reason people walk in the light and there's a reason people don't. There's a reason people are accustomed to living and walking in the darkness and they don't know Jesus and they don't have life and there's a reason people do have life and do know Jesus. It has everything to do about how we think about and respond to the word of God. Not just being the message of salvation, but being Jesus himself who presents us the terms of peace from the king himself. He's saying, I brought the terms of peace. Jesus is the the word that emanates from the Father. The eternal word that has always been alongside the Father. And he brings the message of, of salvation and the message of peace. And you and I, depending on our heart condition not depending on any decision God made before we ever existed to condemn us to hell or to not, but our own decision based on our decision to receive or to not receive that word, right? We will either be free from sin or not. So it has everything to do. This has parable of the sower written all over it. It's that the people Jesus is talking to, they are either the rocky soil or the hard soil or the thorny soil, but none of them, most of the ones Jesus is talking to in this context, they don't actually prove to be fruitful soil. If they were fruitful soil, they would be receptive to the seed of what he's saying, being the word of God. So this we could spend a lot of time just talking logistically about the parable of the sower and the nature of of the human condition and to what degree are we enslaved to sin and can we believe and and how much control do I have on my own heart's reception to the gospel when I hear when I hear it we can talk about all that but the point is there are those who hear the message the word the commandments the gospel of Jesus however you want to frame up the Word of God and they don't have room in their hearts they don't desire to make room for the word they're hearing They have no intent to apply it, believe it, or even seek to understand it or search it out. But I think of the Berean believers in Acts who heard the words of Paul and they're testing, discerning through what he's saying. And they run to the Hebrew Bible. And they go, let's see if what he's saying is true. Let's see if what he's saying about the Messiah is true. And that that, that proves that they're actually truthfully seeking for what is true what is not just honorable to God, but what is consistent with his word and his character. So there are those who don't have a place for the word of Jesus. John fifteen seven, Jesus says, Look, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you wonder why John's gospel emphasizes quite a bit the fact that the word of God has to abide or remain or take up residency in a person. Because that's the only thing that's going to produce the fruit of salvation by the power of the Spirit, through the faith that we've engaged in, through believing in the gospel. That message goes to work. Paul will tell the Colossian church that the the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. And so if the word of God, the message of salvation, takes root in our heart, there will be fruit that comes from that. But it really, we have a role to play in whether or not we allow, or to what degree we allow, the Word of God to abide or take up residency in us or to be planted in our hearts. There's lots of thoughts that are going off in my head. You know, I, I'm glad that the camera didn't work the first time I did this. Because um, I was reading John for a minute, and I felt that the Lord was ask, asking me to read John 4. 'cause that's where I am in my own personal study. And then this came up. Okay. And I it really stood out to me. I think this is one of the things that God is really wanting me to emphasize in first John. And we're not going to stay outside of First John for too long. <clears throat> I'm just trying to give you a framework for what it means to have the Word of God abiding <clears throat> in a person. And why it relates to our lifestyle. Why it relates to our view of Jesus. Why it relates to whether or not we're walking in the light or the darkness. All these things come together. In John 4, Jesus talking to the woman at the well. uh, It's right here. He says, the hour is coming. Because again, remember John is addressing the whole Gnostic teaching. That false teaching that says, well, there's a clear dividing line between spirit and matter. So much so, and I'm not denying a dividing line, however you define that, but the Gnostic teaching says there's such a clear dividing line that the two don't overlap at all. The two have no connection and they don't play off each other and they don't affect one another. And, you know, the conclusion you come to when you think like that is, well, since I'm spirit saved, I can do whatever I want in this fleshly body since it doesn't affect my spiritual condition before God. Actually, how I conduct myself in this body is proof and evidence of whether or not I really have the spiritual life Jesus offers and whether or not I'm grafted into the one who is spirit, which Jesus is going to say, look, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Is God going to receive any kind of worship Is God going to receive any kind of gifts and anything I call worship? No, he receives a kind of worship. There is a kind of sacrifice that honors God. And he says, true worship or true worshipers will offer what is in spirit and in truth. And God is seeking for people to worship him like that. God is spirit and those who worship him must. Like if you're going to proclaim you're worshiping God... If you're going to declare that you belong to him as his child, then you are going to worship him in spirit and truth. Now, what we can do here, and I think this is the reason God really had me go here, because this addresses the whole dividing line between spirit and matter, as if to say, just engage in one to the neglect of the other, which there are two extremes there, right? It's where you emphasize one above the other. What... Jesus is saying is the way to truly worship God and what he accepts as honorable worship is when image bearers of God engage in a worship through their life, through their words, through their engagement with people, worship that is in spirit, right? By the spirit of God and consistent with the truth. Truth is not just an ethereal idea that I, that I mentally, you know, acknowledge, it's not just an intellectual acknowledgement of what is true. And it's not just saying, hey, in this moment, I, I acknowledge the facts about God. Truth is going to actually come out of my life. Truth is the person, according to John 14, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And either I'm grafted into the truth, and I'm walking in accordance with that truth, or I'm not. In other words... Um, What Jesus is saying is to worship God is to, yes, have right thoughts about him. Yes, have a right view of him. Yes, live a life and proclaim things that are consistent with the revelation of God in Scripture. But also, Romans 12 tells us that uh, we're to offer our bodies or our lives as as a living sacrifice. That's where the physical meets the spiritual for me. Boom. It's where these. What I've been given is a physical body, physical resources, time, energy. Well, time's not a physical concept, but you know, the, the my body. I can use my hands. I can I can use my eyes and my ears and my mouth and my and go places that honor God or don't. And that actually is a spiritual matter. That's where spirit and matter actually collides is in the person who lays down their life led by the spirit as a living sacrifice. But the sacrifice that's offered up spiritually is a physical life where I say, God, my spiritual sacrifice to you led by the spirit is how I use my hands how I use my eyes, what I look at, what I choose to focus on, what I choose to listen to and give ear to, what I choose to say to people, how I interact with them, where I choose to go, who I choose to be around, and what I choose to engage in. All these physical matters become spiritual sacrifices unto God should the Spirit of God lead me, and if it's consistent with the truth. And so the truth of God paves the way for how to live sacrificially and in the spirit. You can't just say, I'm living in the spirit, and there's no guidelines for that. There has to be a clear framework and, and definition of what it looks like to live according to the spirit. Otherwise, anyone can do whatever they want and slap the label of, well, I'm doing what the spirit of God wants, or I'm being led by the spirit. Well, if there's no clear defining lines or framework to tell whether or not I'm living in the Spirit, then sure, anyone can claim they're doing what the Spirit of God wants and there's no way for me to say they're not. But then truth comes into play. And the truth of God's Word, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Gospel, the truth of the commands of God, show me what it looks like to indeed walk in, in the spirit, and First John is going to tell us that's going to look like walking in the light, in the light. So I don't just follow any voice leading me any direction, right? And say it's the spirit of God. I'm worshiping Him in spirit. See, but it's you, it's never to the neglect of truth. You're never gonna. You're not walking in the spirit if it's not according to the truth. The spirit will lead you into falsehood. And John's going to spend a lot of time doing that. So all that to kind of preface chapter two and say, John is easing into chapter two. And I know this chapter separations come later in human history. The point is I do see a separation and topic, not to say they're not connected at all. They're not mutually exclusive, but the topic John is easing the reader into is the concept of keeping the commands of God. And it has to do with, does his word abide in you? My ability, and we're going to see this in chapter 2, our ability to live according to the word, truth, and commands of God is directly related to whether or not the spirit of God dwells in me by my own reception of the gospel. And so the word of God abides in us when we believe the message of Christ. That's when the gospel takes up residency in our heart and the spirit of God produces the fruit of that gospel being righteousness and salvation. And he applies the work of Jesus to us when we believe. And so when the word of God takes up residency and the spirit of God fills and regenerates a believer, now I'm capable and empowered to do what God has called me to, namely walk in his commands. So, now we get to chapter 2, verse 1. I'm not thinking clearly today, guys. I'm just letting you know. I'm not all there. I don't know why. <laughs> There's so many rabbit trails. I'm, just, I'm usually more precise in my thinking. Today, I'm all over the place. But chapter 2, verse 1 starts like this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And I've done the liberty of for you guys highlighting each word that I think is, uh, relevant to the key themes in this chapter, meaning here are some key words. Sin is going to be a key word, knowing, keeping truth, word commandments, which are all going to be interchangeable. These are key words being in him or things being in us, right? And so you're going to see truth, word, commandments used interchangeably. In other words, the reason I'm telling you the key words up front is to know, number one, why I highlighted certain things. Number two, that the, the main idea of this chapter is going to be revolving around walking in the truth, keeping God's commandments, the word of God abiding in us, which is going to be juxtaposed to living in the darkness and living in sin. Because he's already brought up the concept of light and darkness in the first chapter. So, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. These things, right here, let me just mark it. This is different. These things, he's already said, um, in verse 4, these things complete our joy as the church. There's something about... The Word of God and the revelation of who He is in His Word that produces a kind of joy. But secondarily, there's a kind of experience and enjoyment of the joy of the Lord, right? And a walking in that when the Word of God guides my life. There is a strong connection between my level of joy and the degree to which His Word is guiding and leading my life. And there's a deep connection between how much joy I have on a daily basis and how much I'm allowing or choosing to have his word be stored up in my heart. So the words of Jesus produce joy. There's no way around that. Uh, I won't go there. (laughs) Avoiding that rabbit trail. Yes, I avoided one. (laughs) Take that. Okay. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but We have to address what I believe is not heretical or blasphemous, but just wrong. It's the concept of sinless perfectionism that there's no way of getting around it. I have to address it in this passage. If anyone does sin, anyone, you or me, and I don't believe he's talking just about unbelievers If anyone sins, we have an advocate. Let me say it like this. Does an unbeliever have an advocate for their sin? This is not God advocating for our sin. This is Jesus being our advocate in terms of helping us to overcome. He deals with the penalty of our sin. He takes our sin upon himself. So, do unbelievers, do they have an advocate Who says, This one's mine when it's all said and done in the kingdom of heaven? They don't. They don't. Let me explain what an advocate is. Uh, This same word is going to be used for the Spirit of God in John 14, 15. Uh, Jesus is going to send a helper, an advocate. The way that Jesus helps or advocates for his people in this specific context is that he stands as our defense attorney, he stands as our representative to say I've this this guy's debt is paid. Th- their sin is dealt with. The penalty of their sin has been handled. He advocates for us as our defense attorney pleading our case before the Father, saying my blood has cleansed this one. So he's our advocate, defense attorney, the one who pleads our case. Okay? An unbeliever doesn't have that beautiful blessing in reality. Because they're in unbelief and rebellion. The advocate is making it available to them that, hey, I will advocate for you if you will come to me and believe in me. But they don't want it. So they don't have an advocate. So when John says we have an advocate, the anyone who is sinning are the people who have an advocate. And you go, well, no. He's talking about an unbeliever. That if they sin and turn to Jesus, now they have an advocate for their sin. And I would say, sure, But does he stop being my advocate once I come to him in faith? No, he continues being my advocate. I don't have a need for an advocate, someone to stand in my place and plead my case and and, and mediate a new covenant. I don't have need for that if I'm capable of handling my sin on my own. Or, for those who believe in sinless perfectionism, if I'm able to never sin again by the Spirit of God. And more power to you, let's not set the bar low, let's aim for perfection. But when I fall short, and it is a win, not an if. Don't set yourself up for failure and set the bar so low where sin's now justifiable. Romans 6 would say, No, grace is not a license to sin. Do aim high and pursue Jesus who is perfect, but when you fall short, in thought, in word, in desire, in action, in, in ambition, in, in in fantasy, all that stuff, when you fall short. You have an advocate. Is that true? Yeah. We have someone pleading our case. And look who he is. He's our advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why does he tag that description of Jesus onto the tail end of the statement? There's a reason. You and I are not righteous without Jesus. You and I are stained and corrupted and perverted by sin and covered in that darkness without Jesus. You and I fall short of the perfect standard of God and there's penalty for our sin without Jesus. You and I are condemned to separation from God and there's nothing we can do about it without Jesus. So the reason Jesus and and the attribute of righteousness is brought up here is to let you know that the unchanging, immutable, perfect, sufficient, righteous human being who's resurrected from the dead, he stands between us and the Father to say, even when we mess up, he says, this one's mine. There is a difference, and John is going to make a strong delineation. There is a difference between struggling with sin and living in sin as a as a habitual way of life where there's no repentance and no conviction there is a difference people who say if you are a believer you will never sin anymore not only are they burdening people with expectations god doesn't place on them not only are they holding them to a standard god doesn't hold them to okay but when you say a believer will never sin. You eliminate inadvertently the need for an advocate daily. Don't tell me. You only need the advocate initially to believe and then the rest of your life you don't need him. Will that kind of way of thinking promote self-righteousness and pride or humility and dependency on God? I would say... To say that I need Jesus to come into faith, but now that I have the Spirit, I can live sinless, and I will, or I'm not a believer. That puts all the burden, all the expectation, and frankly, all the emphasis on you and your ability to do. And your striving, and your working. And you would say, no, I'm doing it by the Spirit of God within me. I've had this conversation so often, the last few days for some reason. This, the conversation of, hey, is a believer someone who never sins? Or is a believer someone who's going to be sanctified over time in lifestyle, but in the sight of God, they're perfect and blameless and holy because of Jesus and their sins are paid for. A believer, we are adding to the scriptures when we say a Christian will never sin. You're undermining the grace and the beauty of what Jesus has done. You're undermining like uh, the need for humility and dependency. There's so many people who are going to look at this and find a way around it. Let me tell you straight up. I'm not advocating, pun intended, for sin. I'm not saying, now that we have an advocate, go and live however you want. What I am saying is, if you truly belong to God through faith, your mentality will not be, hey, I can get away with sin now. If you have that mentality, let me tell you straight up, lovingly, you're either new to the faith and you don't understand the gospel and you're an infant believer, or you don't know Christ. I, I guarantee you when we get to John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, you're going to understand this a little more, that a true believer will not view grace as a license to sin. If you see your advocate, the righteous one, as a reason to go and live in sin, you fundamentally misunderstand the gospel. You misunderstand what he saves us from. You misunderstand what he saves us into. But the daily need for an advocate still stands. We need him. You need him far more than you think. I need him far more than I think. Not just to live holy. Not just to live righteous. But to actually pick me up when I fall short. So you and I, the reason Jesus here is called the righteous. John is emphasizing that attribute of Jesus that actually gets extended to us. Why is Jesus able to pay for sin? He's righteous. Why is Jesus able to pay our sin debt? He's righteous. Why is Jesus able to make us perfect in the sight of the Father so that through him we meet the standard of God? Because he's righteous. He's right. He's upright. He's morally perfect. There's no blemish in the person of Jesus. So not only does Jesus make you righteous and holy and perfect the second you believe, but the process of sanctification and the falling periodically into sin and struggling and fighting, that doesn't change who my advocate is. That doesn't change what he declares about me. That doesn't change who I am because I'm connected to the righteous one. He makes you righteous. And then over time, your life begins to match up with that position and reality of being righteous in the sight of God. And so your identity will leak into your way of life. It will. Everyone lives out Who they really are or who they perceive themselves to be. Identity affects lifestyle. So we have an advocate even if we sin. Now again, there will people who will hear this. People who will go, oh yes, you're giving people license to sin and you don't even know it. Really? After I very clearly over and over state that him being our advocate eliminates the license to sin. He's not a license to sin. He's a reason not to. And if you think he's a a license to sin and believing in Christ as the righteous one gives me the license to live how I want, you misunderstand the gospel. And you might not really know him. You might not know him. Is that a strong statement? No, John's going to say it explicitly in two verses. Jesus is the propitiation. That's a big word for payment in full. The appeasement of God's wrath and justice against sin. Why can I be someone that isn't perfect in life, but I'm still perfect in the sight of God because someone else paid my debt? met the standard of God on my behalf, died my death, rose to life to win back the life we forfeited in the garden, and then he extends that to me so that in God's sight, I am righteous, I am holy, and I am perfect because of who covers me. That's why. And all of that is possible because he brought the full payment of his precious blood to pay sin. To pay for our sin. So he appeases full appeasement of the wrath and justice of God. But watch this. This is where the Calvinistic thinking. And I love you brothers and sisters who are even borderline Calvinist. I love you. But at least limited atonement crumbles to the ground with this verse he's the appeasement of wrath the payment in full for our sins not for ours only being the church being believers also for the sins of the whole world now in john's gospel and in the letter first john second john third john he's going to use the world to always emphasize off the top of my head i can't think of any anything else he'll emphasize but he'll use it to mean the unbelieving people or the unbelieving system that's opposed to God. So what John is saying, Jesus doesn't just bring payment enough for the sins of his people. He and his precious blood is so sufficient to pay for every single ounce of human evil across human history. Does that mean I'm a universalist and everyone's getting to heaven? Heck no. But I do believe It's available to anyone. In other words, the sacrifice of Jesus is enough for all of humanity. If they would so choose, all of humanity can be righteous in the sight of God should they come to him in faith. But the problem is, lots of people won't. Lots of people don't want to. And so while the sacrifice is available, it doesn't benefit them or apply to them personally. If they don't believe and receive what Christ has done, so I, I'm just saying, if the sins of the whole world—not the believing world, the whole world—John three sixteen for God so love the world, He gives, He's loved the whole world. God does not just love uh, specific people enough to send His Son to only die for them; He dies for even those who he knows will reject him, but the sacrifice is on the table. But once they die in unbelief and stay in rebellion, they've missed out on the beautiful blessing of knowing Christ. So, you know, John 1, 29, John the Baptist yells at the top of his lungs, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Has Jesus brought... Sufficient payment for all human evil. John seems to indicate yes. But there's a difference between having something available to you and having something benefit you personally and apply to you. So as we, as we work our way towards what it means to know Jesus. And by the way, verse 3 is pretty clear. If we keep his commandments, then that's evidence. We know him. If we don't keep his commandments, we don't know him. The question then becomes, what does it mean to keep his commandments? What commandments are in mind? Ten commandments, Torah. Hold on. That's too simplistic of an answer. And you know, it's not. It is. But before we ease into that, getting ahead of myself, The point is, before we get to lifestyle and obedience and sanctifying and living holy, you need to understand what Christ has done for you. Why? So that the truth of the gospel can take up residency in your heart and go to work by the power of the Spirit to bear the fruit of what John is going to call keeping his commandments, obeying, loving one another. Those things are fruit products of knowing Jesus and believing in the gospel don't you think about that well buckle up guys buckle up John says look by this we know we've come to know him in other words how do I know I personally have an advocate pleading my case, who's paid for my sin, who's made me righteous and holy, how do I know I'm truly born again and a child of God through faith? Here's one of the main ways you can recognize it. If you say that you know Jesus, if you say, I'm a Christian, been a Christian for 6,489 years, all born on the altar, do you keep his commandments? What does that mean? Good thing John's going to explain for us in a chapter from now. What do I mean by that? 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Just so you understand what John is saying. Not me. This is John explaining himself in the same letter. I'm not even going outside of the letter of 1 John. I will in a minute. Okay? I will in a minute. But know that I'm starting locally. This is his commandment. What? What is the commandment of God? That we believe. Believe what? Believe in who? In the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And? And you're like, and? I thought you said one commandment. These, this is one commandment. Faith and love are inextricably connected. To believe in the Son and in the gospel is to be positioned for and equipped to live a life of love. But belief in Jesus comes first. Oh, I just I have to go here. Our ability to love people is directly connected to our view of Jesus. The better I know him, the more love I have for people. That's just the way God has wired this thing to work. Love is fruit. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It starts with love for a reason, to let you know one of the greatest evidences of true faith is going to be love. Faith and love are so inextricably connected, they're not the same thing but you almost can't have one without the other. If I'm going to love God and love people, that starts with first believing right things about Him and believing in Him and trusting in Him. And that's not just a general blanket statement to say, I believe what I want about God and I believe what I want to believe about what He's done for me. You believe in in the very clear gospel message of Jesus that He lived the perfect life for us he fulfilled the law, he died our death, he paid our sin debt in full. Right, he lived perfectly, resisted temptation unto death, laid down his life and he resurrected 3 days later. And he's the eternal word emanating from the Father, made flesh so that we could have his life and he comes to save if you believe in him and him alone, he will make you righteous. He will make you perfect. He'll cleanse you of all sin. He'll give you a new heart. That is the gospel. It's believing and within believing assumes repentance. Because what are you believing Jesus to do? What are, you, what are you saying the problem is that he's solving? What are you sorry for? It assumes a repentant heart to truly believe in the gospel. So the commandment, firstly, that John wants us to understand is that we are commanded by God to believe in his son. And his testimony about his son. And the revelation of his son and the work of his son. And if you don't, if you reject the son and you reject Jesus' work, you will not live a life of true biblical godly love for people. Why? Because my ability to love people is directly uh, preceded by my decision to first love God. And you're like, "Uh, what? He says, believe first in the Son. That's the commandment. And love one another just as he has commanded us. And love here isn't going to be defined by the person. You and I don't get to self-define what love is. I know culture wants to give you a concept of love. and, And the world wants to define love for you. It's wrong. It's blatantly, like outright, completely wrong. Because the way God defines love is actually framed up by His commands. The Ten Commandments, the Torah, the laws of God lay out for me very clearly what it looks like to love. Don't murder. If you are murdering someone, you probably don't love them. Just like for those that are really wondering... (laughs) You know, if you, you know, commit adultery, you're probably not loving the person you're committing it with or committing it against. You know, or uh, fill in the blank of whatever it is that God calls us to do. Okay. In other words, you and I have been trained by society to disconnect love from the commands of God. And John wants you to understand, no, 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 no. To walk outside of his commands is to operate outside of love. Like if you're going to disobey God in this moment, you're choosing not to love either God or the people made in his image. You're never loving people while violating the commands of God. But when I obey and I do what God says, it leads me into what love really is. That's showing me love. So love is very clear. It's it's pretty. 1 Corinthians 12. Not only are the characteristics outlined, but the way it's going to look is outlined in the person of Jesus and the commands of God. Which, by the way, Jesus is the law of God come to life, you might say, with arms and legs. Perfect embodiment and personification of God himself, which is the law of God is meant to reveal God. So Jesus personifies the law. Like, if you want to know what does it look like to honor God, look at Jesus, and you go, I can't. Okay, look at his life, and look at the commands God gives for us. And you go, okay, I just got to, like, follow a bunch of commands. Um, First, you have to believe, obey the first command, which is to believe. That's first. If you don't believe in the Son... You don't have the ability to really walk in the commands of God because any good you think you're doing is filthy rags in his sight because you are tainted and corrupted by sin and that is what God sees if you're not in Christ. And so you might go, I'm a morally good person without God. I don't need Jesus. That's sweet. You can define morality on your own terms. You can you can set the bar on your own terms and go, I'll be morally good on my own in my own strength. When you get into the kingdom, your standard won't matter. What's going to matter is what did God say is morally acceptable? What did he say is good? And he defines good as perfect. So if you're not perfect, you don't get into his kingdom. And you go, oh man, that's a bummer. That means even if I do the commands of God, if I don't believe in the son, then these commands profit me nothing. Ding, ding, ding. You nailed it. You nailed it. Because you can't meet the law, Jesus has, and so He extends to you perfection, so that you can walk in His ways and obey His commands without the burden of the penalty of sin looming over you. So now I'm free to enjoy and walk in the commands of God, without feeling like that that burning sensation of I'm condemned. Jesus took it. So now I'm secure, and now I'm safe. In the refuge of Jesus and I can do what God says without this terror of condemnation and and hellfire and separation from God however you define that but I really need you to see loving people is the overflow or the product of first believing in the name of Jesus If Jesus is not leading your life at any given moment, in that moment, if you're violating his commands, you're not loving someone. So what God does is he graciously regenerates us, makes us a new creation when we believe, gives us a new heart, gives us a new mind. So that now we are capable of going out and loving the way that honors him. And so by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, what I want to do is take you to John 6. Let me just read it for you. John 6 29, Jesus says, Look, this is the work of God. The Jewish people come to him and go, Hey, uh, what do we need to do to do the works of God? For those of you that are like, You're making this up, let me just show you on the screen. Bunch of doubters. Okay, they come to him. What do we do to be doing the works of God? Essentially, the question is, what is the works of God so we can do it? Jesus goes, well, here's the work of God. Believe in the one whom he has sent. What's he saying? Believe in Jesus. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news about Christ, who he is, what he's done, and what he says about himself. Then John chapter 15, verse 12. you're going to see the second part of what we saw in 1 John 3. 1 John 3, 23 said, this is the command of God. Believe and love. Because love is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. You can sum up the entirety of the law and prophets in one statement. Love God, love people. That's not possible without first having a new created heart and mind and nature to effectively do that which means i have to believe so faith is the way into a life of love faith positions us like believing in jesus it positions you for a life of love now you're equipped and you're capable of doing that which does not mean because i can hear the atheist ringing in my ear this does not mean (laughs) that an unbeliever is incapable of love at all, right? I'm not saying an unbeliever can't do anything morally good. I'm just saying those good things that you think make you right and somehow are in your spot in heaven. God sees us filthy rags because it's tainted with sin. And quite possibly, an unbeliever without Jesus, any kind of love they're portraying or think they're engaging in, It is probably infused with a little bit of flesh and darkness. I I don't know that an unbeliever is actually capable of the love God shows for us. Because love has to be rooted in the truth. And if I'm loving in, in, in a way that's inconsistent with the truth, it's no longer love. And you go, well, I did a nice thing for someone. Okay, but did it honor god and actually exalt his name and actually uh was it consistent with who he is did it move them towards the direction of god i would argue you can run to first corinthians 13 and list out all the different dimensions of love but love is what ultimately moves people closer to god so if i'm doing something that is moving people away from God or enabling sin in their life or, you know, causing them to walk away from Jesus a bit and take their faith less seriously, then I'm no longer biblically loving because love is not just about the action, but the intent and the direction that action is driving someone. And so John 15 verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. The commandment has always been in the Old Testament for the people of Israel to love neighbor, to love God, of course, right? To not bow down to any any other gods. But the way Jesus frames up the sum of the law now is, hey, you loving people is going to look like how I loved you. But he has yet to lay down his life and go to the cross. So they're only, the disciples are only going to make sense of this post-resurrection when they're looking back and going, He loved us enough to come into our world, lay down his life, willingly sacrifice himself, and give himself up for our benefit. So the commandment of Jesus that is rooted in faith is love people like Jesus loved us. John fifteen ten, two verses before. It's going to talk about keeping the commandments, because again, if you guys just run with this and you assume John is talking about a daily obedience to the Torah, then suddenly, if I at any moment disobey, then you might have grounds to say you really don't know Jesus. So is John talking about us perfectly keeping the law on our own? Or is he talking about believing in the Son who perfectly fulfills the law for us so that now I can walk in the commands of God? Not perfectly, but I'm trying as best as I can and not even consistently. I'm trying the best that I can. But Jesus, as my advocate, covers the sin that I fall into and fills in the gaps. John 15, 10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So the abiding or remaining or Continuing or being in the love of God requires us to keep the commandments. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. But John already and Jesus from his own words have told us what the commandment is. Believe and then go love. Which means obey the commandments of God laid out in Torah. Obey the the actual laws of God. Because that's what love is going to be. Love is going to be in honor and in response to God and his love for us. It's going to be in obedience to him. And it's going to be in the direction of what benefits my brother or sister most. And so this is not to be a whole sermon on love. That's not what this is. I didn't originally want this to be that. That's just what it ends up being. Verse 4 says, whoever says, 'I, I know Jesus. Well, I know God, but they don't keep his commandments is a liar. So if you make this statement, if you read into this, uh, let's just say how I know how other people read this. They go, whoever says I know him, but uh, disobeys any one of the Ten Commandments. They're lying and the truth isn't in him. And they give no room. For a child of God to wrestle and struggle with and fight against sin. So again, I've I've already explained. (laughs) This is not at all to give a license to sin. Or to justify sin. Or enable sin. Or to excuse it. Or even to deny it. This is to say, what does it mean to keep his commandments? According to John and Jesus, it means believing first. So if you say, I know God, but you don't believe in the sun, you're a liar. But for those who do believe, there's a secondary layer to this. If I really believe, love will be the overflow of that faith. That over time, I should see growing evidence of love for God and love for people. So I think the second layer to this is, hey, if remember the, the focus is believing in the sun. Not to the neglect of love, but love is going to be the byproduct of faith. So if I don't believe in the son and I'm an unbeliever and I reject the gospel, well, I'm not going to live a life that honors God. I'm not going to live according to his commands. I'm not going to live a life that's in love for God and people. So if you look at that life of continual habitual sin and hatred and, and not listening to God and not regarding his commandments, then you can say, wow, that person probably doesn't know Jesus. Or they're new to the faith and they've been, you know, uh, they're confused or they've been taught wrong. There's potentially that. But the point is to say, I know him. I'm a believer, but I don't do what he says. That's the point. And what God tells us to do is believe in the son. What that will Turn into is sanctification and growing obedience. So, in other words, the keeping of commandments here is multi-dimensional. I I would say is the best way to explain it. It's not only believe. It's not only love. It's it's it includes the process of sanctification and the overall life of a person, which either is witness to their faith or is witness to their lack of faith. So if you don't keep the commandments of God, again, there's some that'll read this and go, oh my gosh, if I don't perfectly follow God, if I ever sin, if I'm not sinlessly perfect in my life, then I don't know him. And I just wanna say, that would fly in the face of everything he said about our need for an advocate who is righteous and makes us righteous and pays for our sins so that we can know him And now can walk in his commandments. Which first was believing. And is secondly, based on that faith, going to be loving God and people. Which is obedience to the Torah. So, I just want you to know. We have an advocate. Not to enable sin. But the assumption is. He's there to deal with and cover our sin justly. Because this verse gets twisted so much, especially First John 3, 6 through 9, which we'll get to. But whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, okay? So let's just keep that right there. Just so you guys are aware, John is not uh, communicating any new idea. Keeping the word of God is the same as keeping the commands of God. And both of those things happen when the truth is in a person. Do you see it? So when I believe and my heart is receptive to the gospel, well, the message of salvation takes up residency in my heart. The spirit of God goes to work, produces fruit. And the fruit of my faith is going to be that I keep The word or keep the commandments of God. Think of a shepherd. Think of a shepherd keeping watch over his sheep. He's actively consciously aware of where they're at, what's going on. He's watching them diligently and carefully. There's this, there's this concern for, that's the idea here. When he says, keep his commandments, when you believe now go and live like Jesus It's where you actually are aiming your life in the direction of what honors God. And you're pursuing His commands. You're desiring to obey Him. Another way of saying it is like this. If you believe, you will have a growing concern for God's commands. If you believe, you'll experience a growing conviction of sin in your life. If you believe... You'll see a change in heart and your affections and desires and relationship with sin will fundamentally change. If you believe your desire and ambition will be to honor God by keeping his commandments, suddenly you desire to obey him and walk according to his ways. And if none of those things are present, John would like you to know you probably don't know him and the truth you claim to have it probably doesn't dwell within you like you think. But whoever keeps his word in him, okay? I forgot to highlight this phrase because that seems to be um, a repeating idea right here, four, five, and six. The concept of something being in a person or in Christ, right? So in other words, me obeying and walking as inconsistently as that might look, me obeying God and keeping his commandments as best as I can, led by the Spirit, that proves the invisible reality of his truth dwelling in me that you can't see. You can't measure. You can't take out a ruler and go, does this person have the truth of God in his heart? What you can do is look at the overall course of that person's life. Frankly, I don't have that ability. I see people's lives in moments and seasons. God sees the whole life unfolded but the life matters The life matters because the life is going to be affected by the truth you believe in. This is where the spirit and the matter come together, right? This is where the, the invisible immaterial collides with the physical material world where the ethereal, you know, philosophical concept of truth. When it takes residency in my heart, that's a spiritual reality. But then it will manifest physically so much so that I begin to embody the ways of God because I trusted in the one who is perfect. And now I can embody his ways and the Torah, the laws of God, begin to come to life through me, through my active life. Um, So um, let me address this question from James. He says, Kind of circular reasoning. What is his command to love him and keep his command, how to keep his command to love him and keep his, command. what is his command? The command fundamentally is believe. If there's any, I don't want to like, I don't want to like say this in a demeaning way. It's it's not demeaning, but it's almost like the the main or even, I don't want to call it a gateway command to think of it like a gateway drug. But the way into love, loving God and loving people, is firstly by believing. So the primary command that is of utmost importance is to believe in the Son. Okay? And uh, not to at all put the commands at odds or say oh, there's a hierarchy. But what is of most concern is that we believe in the Son. Then, guess what? We will now go and obey the overall command found within the, you know, the framework of faith, which is to love, to love. Um, so I don't think we have to choose and go, so is it love or is it, is it obeying or is it believe? It's all three because again, to believe is going to produce love in my life, produce uh, change in relationship with sin and, and change my relationship with God to believe that is the way into All the commands that you and I, frankly, could never follow and could never, you know, be uh, accepted by God as uh, something that is good. Because our sin, you know, everything we do, it's filthy rags without Jesus. And John 15 will tell us, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. He literally means that. He literally means, you know, you without me, like disconnected in rebellion and unbelief. There's nothing good that the father goes, oh, that is something profitable and eternal. You can't give him anything. So apart from Jesus, we quite literally can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value. That's why believing is the way into doing things that actually matter to God eternally. So whoever keeps his word, the keeping of the word, the keeping of the commandments is to firstly again believe then I go and love and do what God says but that's not possible without first believing it's not at least not a lifestyle by this we may uh, in him truly the love of God is perfected John is going to unpack that a little more in first John 4 12 through 18 and so uh, we'll get to that when we get there but the concept of the love of God being perfected in a person All these concepts go together. The perfecting love of God relates to his word abiding in us. In other words, there's so many thoughts going on in my head. Remember how I said love is the fruit of receiving the word? When we look at Jesus who is the word, he's also the perfect, he's literally love itself. It's not a characteristic of Jesus. It's not like set some you know external attribute. It is actually the fundamental essence of Jesus. Love personified. He's the essence and source of love. So, you might say, through believing the word about the love of God, that love perfects us in the sight of God. That faith in the one who loves us that faith in the message about God's love for us that faith will lead us into a kind of God perfecting us by his love for us and so this is this is the person positionally I would I would venture to say being perfected and made holy and righteous in the sight of God but it does say in that person the love of God is perfected or completed, brought to completion. Whether that's in our understanding, I wouldn't say in our understanding. We don't perfectly understand the love of God. I would say it is the, it is God's love perfecting and completing us in a sense of making us right and dealing with sin. Um, there's probably another way to explain this and I want to wait till 1 John 4 to get there really. But in that person, the love of God is perfected. In what person? In the person who keeps his word. When you see someone whose life is in, in pursuit of obeying God, they're just like, I'm just, I just love God and I want to obey him. I just want to go and do what he says. That person is evidencing, you know, their life is witness to the fact that the word of God has taken up residency in them and they've been perfected by his love. The love of God in them has been perfected. And so love will come out of them because of the love they've received. All these ideas come together. And frankly, my, again, I'm not thinking clearly this morning. I apologize. But like you guys go and do a study on, on God's word and love and the perfecting nature of, of our salvation. And see how all those three things come together. Okay? By this, we know that we are in him. Because the overall question we're answering today is, how do I know I really believe? How do... How do I know I belong to him? Did you believe the gospel? Well, yeah. Do you understand the gospel? Well, yeah, okay. Do you see evidence of growing love and growing obedience to the commands of God in your life, which assumes a change in desires, a conviction of sin, a repentant heart? Do you see those things? And you go, yeah, yeah, I I see those things over the course of my life and it's inconsistent and I'm up and down, uh, I see growth, okay. John would say that is outward evidence, not the only evidence, but part of the outward evidence that you really do know him. And I don't think John is trying to get us to spend our lives measuring if we really believe that doesn't sound like an enjoyable life. It seems like he's saying, just trust in and rest in Jesus. Look to him daily do what he says love him grow closer to him right pursue him know him better invest into your relationship with jesus and watch the impossible and miraculous happen and part of that includes the fruit of love that is you're going to look back 10 years from now and go man i have the love of god is really through my life being perfected and i see evidence of that that should be the story of a believer how do i know john is going to um um uh, connect our confidence and security with the presence of love in our life he's not doing it quite yet and i believe that comes if not in the end of this chapter it's at the end of um the chapter chapter 3 um But he's going to connect this idea of part of me being sure and certain that I belong to God is going to be the evidence of his love in my life. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. Now love takes on arms and legs. In other words, now we can put legs on this thing. Because when I tell you love... Love. You're like, oh, I could do that on my, I could define that myself. Okay. John makes it pretty clear that the commands of God outline perfect love. And if that's not enough for you, and if that's not practical enough, here's an even more practical thing. Read the gospels, read about how Jesus lived, interacted, how he conducted himself, how he related to his disciples and the father, and now go and do what he did. It's actually really that simple walk like Jesus walked and what did he walk in? He walked in the light because he is the light of the world. He walked in love because he is love. He walked in the truth because he is truth. And so the love and the truth and the light of God all collide in the person of Jesus. So that now, not only do I have a way into the kingdom through the truth, the life and the way into back to the father. But I also have a clear demonstration in Christ of what it looks like to follow God's commands, love God perfectly, love people, and walk in the light. And so now you say, well, why are you bringing in the light? Because he's bringing back into play the light-darkness kind of contrast. So... Um, mm, Let me go back to verse 5 real quick. I missed something in my notes that I really want to make sure I touch on. Whoever keeps his word. um, That active, intentional pursuit of the word and application of the word. It's a lifelong process. We'll say it like that. The keeping there is not just a moment. Yes, faith and believing in the gospel happens in a moment. But that faith will be expressed and witnessed to throughout the life. So while faith starts in a moment, it lasts the entire life of a person, okay? So with that in mind, keeping his commands might start with believing, but the keeping there is going to be an active lifestyle where my life in majority, there's my daughter screaming in the background, probably my son beating her up or vice versa. Me following Jesus and believing is going to look like a lifelong pursuit of obeying and loving God and growing in that. First John 5.3 says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And just so you know, His commandments aren't burdensome. <laughs> Sounds like Jesus saying, Come to me all who are weary. I don't know why my daughter is screaming over and over. It's wonderful, right? John 14.23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. To keep the word of Jesus doesn't just mean I mentally acknowledge the facts and I agree with them. That's not just what it is. That's a good starting place, but it moves into I apply it because I truly believe it. Everyone is living out their belief system, right? What I believe you can tell by how I live. Everyone's living out what they truly believe. So if you believe Jesus is who he said he is, if you believe he's done what he said he's done, then your life will be a testimony and witness to that by your continual pursuit and growing obedience to God's commands. Verse 7 says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old one that you've had from the beginning. Remember how 1 John opens, that which was from the beginning. Think Genesis. Think what pre exists time itself and however you make sense of creation. What pre exists our world and the universe and everything that is created is Jesus as the source of those things. And now John is actually hearkening back to that and saying, yeah, the commandment God gave us from the beginning, uh, it's it's exactly what I'm writing to you. The old commandment is the word you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. And you go, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just said it's old. It's not new. Didn't he say that? He said, I'm writing to you no new commandment in verse 7. But verse eight, and this is where the atheist goes, ha ha, contradiction, you dumb Christians. And I go, no, no, you're silly. Verse eight, he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment. How can something not be something, but at the same time, be that something? Quite possibly, we have a picture of how Jesus is alongside the Father here, distinct from God, yet God at the same time. But instead of going down that rabbit trail, let's just go to John thirteen thirty four. How about that? Okay. John 13, 34, okay? This is a new commandment Jesus gives in the upper room. And John writing 1 John, probably recalling this moment in the upper room. Jesus says to the disciples, hey, boys. Now that Judas is gone, which I actually don't think he's gone yet. He's gone. He's gone. This is probably why Jesus really gets into it. He goes, hey, um, a new commandment I give to you love one another. Now, as an Israelite, you would go, no, that's just like what God told us in the very beginning. <laughs> all the way back to the patriarch Abraham, all the way back to Noah, I mean, all in the, in the garden. This is not new. This has always been what God desires for his image bearers is that we would love and walk in his love and enjoy his love and love him back and love his people. So as an Israelite, you're going, it's not really a new commandment, Jesus. Loving peoples has always been God's desire and intent for humanity. Here's where it becomes new. He adds this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the portion that becomes new. So this right here, loving one another, that's old. But the 2.0 version, you might say, is the one who fulfills the law perfectly, loves perfectly, is love personified and the source of love. And he goes, just do what I do. So now, not only do I have instruction on how to love, I have a clear picture on what it practically looks like to live in love. That's Jesus. You can look at the Torah and all the instructions. Like, okay, don't murder. Okay, don't lie. No human being has perfectly followed that until Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And he steps on the scene and he goes, "I'm the perfect revelation of the Father and I'm love personified. Look at me. I'm going to show you what love looks like with arms and legs." Now, we have something to imitate. Now we have a a real human person to model our life after and say he's perfect love. So when I follow him and do what he does, I'm walking in love. That's the new dimension to the covenant or the commandment. It's not just love. It's now it's imitate Jesus. Now it's look at what he does and look at how my app quit on me. Look at what he does for us and look at how he operates That is what love looks like. Let me pull this over. So, we go back to 1 John. John. No, I said it like that. And John is right. He's not writing a new commandment. God's always desired for us to love. The new dimension of it, right? Specifically, there's probably other dimensions to it that I haven't thought through. But the the new addition, you might say. Uh, in the new covenant to this command God has for his people is just look at my son. Believe in my son. And that might also be the new dimension, another dimension to it, which is, you know, it's new because now the love God asks me to do is not going to be my own manufactured, you know, strength and efforts and producing now. Now. The love I have for people Is unique from the old covenant in the sense that I'm grafted into the one who is love. I have a new heart and a new mind and I'm a new creation that's capable of loving and my love is in response to Jesus' love for me which was demonstrated on the cross. So you have all these different dimensions. Now I have something to imitate. Now I have something to respond to. Now I have something to mentally picture in the form of a person what love looks like. Right now, my love is from a place of security and knowing Jesus and resting in him and knowing the work is finished and there's assurance and confidence attached to it. Now, now my love is the fruit of the spirit dwelling within me. So that's possibly why it's a new new commandment. So it's new that he's writing to them, which is true in him in who in Jesus. Like love is true in Jesus. That's That's a true statement love is jesus is love say it like that but also he says you know this new commandment of loving okay and this new commandment of of believing in the son which comes you know at a unique point in human history right now the messiah has come now we have someone to look to and believe in and we actually understand the work he accomplished and what he came to do and So the commandment is not just love. Again, it's rooted in faith. So when you combine faith and love, these two inextricable things they are inextricably connected. This is how he can say it's true in Jesus. And it's also true in you. It's also true in you. In other words, the law that Jesus has fulfilled, because God is gracious, he's honored your faith with Uh, his son's perfection so that now in christ you and i fulfill the law we obey this you might say we perfectly meet the standard of god now because of jesus romans 8 tells us and it's just a good reminder i know you i read it a lot that there's no condemnation for those who are in christ and you go why 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 is there no penalty for sin for those who believe? Why is it so easy? How does uh, a random Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago being hung on a cross, how does that take away my human, the, the, the evil and the penalty and, and, and the death? How does, how does that affect me? In verse 3, it goes, Well, God has done what the law, weakened by my own flesh, couldn't do. How? Well, He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. So evil, you might say, takes up residency in the body of Jesus on the cross. And so sin is embodied in the physical body of Christ on the cross right there. So that why? So that God could condemn sin itself in the flesh of his son who gave himself up to be the sacrifice for that sin. And how does that affect us? Well... Now, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Who? Those who walk in the Spirit. Those who have faith. And so I can now meet the law perfectly through my faith in Jesus. Because he met the law perfectly for me. There's a great exchange. He takes our death, we get his life. He takes our sin and evil upon himself, we get his perfection and righteousness. So that's how what's true in him becomes true in us. We have fulfilled the law of God in Christ. But also, that commandment becomes true in my life. Meaning, um, love itself, God, um, who is love, has taken up residency in us. Not so that we would keep love to ourselves, but so that we would be extensions of his love. So watch this. When I love people, you can uh, truthfully say that love is uh, uh, coming to life or being expressed or taking on a, a physical manifestation through my life. When we choose to love, love is being true, you might say, in me. In me. In other words, my love for people is testimony To the fact that I've been perfected in His love, and so now what was true of Jesus becomes true of me positionally, in my status and identity, but also in my way of life. Now my life is testifying to the truth that I've been perfected in His love, and that commandment becomes true in me. So you have to keep these two ideas in in balance. There's you know uh, justification, right, and there's sanctification. I'm justified. I meet the law of God, I'm holy, I'm perfect, I'm righteous, but there's a way of life that's going to slowly, progressively match up with that. And you go, if you were to ask John, if you were to ask John, hey John, um, uh, at the same time it's a new commandment, like we get that, you explain yourself, uh, you explain that the commandment is true in Jesus and in us, Um Why? Why is that true? He would say, well, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining just for your convenience. I've highlighted every instance of light in green and every instance of darkness in blue. Okay. Or anything associated with darkness, like sin or death. And so it, it it almost goes like this. Hey, John, why is this new commandment true in me? Because it's true in Christ. He would say, well, Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And you go, that metaphor doesn't make it any more clear, John. It's making me more angry, more confused. Ephesians 5, 8. Don't become partners with them, sons of disobedience. At one time, you were darkness. Like Colossians tells us, we were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Okay? So watch this. A lot of believers misunderstand this. You and I were not just subject to darkness. We weren't just under darkness. We didn't just engage in darkness. Paul wants you to understand in Ephesians, before Jesus, you and I, though we were image bearers of God, we were darkness. We were darkness. We were children of the devil, enemies of God, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. We were darkness. But now... He says, you are light. He doesn't say you just walk in the light. He doesn't just say the light has come to you. Yes, the light has come. Jesus is the light of the world. Yes, he's filled me with his light. Yes, I walk in the light. But he's fundamentally changed my identity and my nature and my essence. So much so that my new status and position before God is I am the light of the world with Christ. Not to add to him, not to replace him. Right? But to say that Jesus extends and manifests his light through his people. But first, he has to change our nature. Because light and darkness can't coexist. I can't be an enemy of God while carrying the light of Jesus. He has to change our nature. So he makes us new. He makes us light. So not just I have light, or I am doing the light, or I'm walking in the light. I am light in Christ. I'm no longer darkness. So walk as children of light. I think this is what John is touching on. Is there's evidence in my life that the darkness of my past and my sin is passing away. It's gone. You know what uh, Second Corinthians says is we're a new creation in Christ. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. The darkness of my old life, the darkness of my past, the darkness of my old sinful man. It's passing away. Like there's evidence in my life that I'm no longer living in sin. And the proof of me progressively, you know, living holy and and being sanctified and obeying the commands of God. That is evidence to the fact that, yeah, we see that you are now the light of Christ. By the testimony of your life. So I will admit John does use passing away as something that's presently actively happening. The darkness is passing away. He doesn't say it has passed away. So I think what he's referring to is the way of life or the change in rulership. The world is undergoing, right? The world is shifting and eventually it's going to come under the rulership of Jesus. But right now the enemy is the ruler of the world. And so it's, it's in transition. It's, it's slowly coming under new management, you might say. And so we see evidence of the darkness passing away in our world through the church, but also in my own life. In my own life, I see, well, I'm not as dark as I used to live. I don't talk like I used to. I don't, I don't interact with people and, get, and blow up at the smallest things and lose my temper like I used to. I'm not so judgmental and hypocritical of every person I meet the very second I meet them like I used to be. The darkness is passing away in my life. Which testifies to the fact that, yes, the commandment of God to love and believe is true in me. Like, I actually truly believe. Because in my life, I see evidence of the darkness of my past slowly going away. And the true light of Jesus is shining in my life. Do you see evidence of the light of Jesus? And you and I can't just qualify and define that however we want its holiness its love its righteous living its purity its integrity its honesty its generosity its hospitality it's all these different things so romans 13:12 says the night is gone the day is at hand if that's the case let's cast off which by the way is your decision And my decision, it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And to walk properly. Right? Not in these things. But to do what honors Jesus. And so, yes, my identity is that I am the light of Jesus. He's made me fundamentally new. He's, I'm, I'm the child of God, I'm, I'm adopted, I'm forgiven, you know, we're reconciled, we're all these things. That's our identity, that's our position and status. But do you see evidence in your life of that identity slowly changing the way that you live? So that the darkness of your old life is, is slowly going out and it's being replaced with what? The light of God's holiness, the light of obedience and love. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. So now we have a way to qualify what it means to be in the light. It includes loving people. It includes loving people. But if, and again, I should have said this up front. The concept here of hating or um, let's see, Keeping the commandments of God. I'm not saying the two are. I'm saying the verbs in mind. Okay, the verbs that John is using, which you and I might be tempted to think of as referring to a moment of like, I keep. God. He's talking about a lifestyle, a pattern, a habitual way of life that is directed in a hateful way towards brother. And if you have. No evidence of love in your life. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother. This is not talking about um, uh, if I, you know, fumble the ball, metaphorically, and give into the flesh and allow hatred to seep in me towards a brother. And I confess that, okay, and repent and go, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I don't know what happened. He's not saying that because you did that, that's proof you don't really know him and you're not in the light. That the, this... Uh, loving brother or in contrast hating brother is referring to a way of living a an overall the majority of your life is this either a person's life will be mostly marked by love or mostly marked by what john calls hatred of brother which is murderous intent covetousness um, com- comparison, jealousy, envy, selfishness, pride, self-righteousness toward, um, toward, you know, people. So this is talking about a, a lifestyle just so no one is confused. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his So to be in the light, let me just make sense of this for you. To believe in Jesus is not just to come into the light momentarily. It's now I am in the light for the rest of, not just my life, but for the rest of my existence. It's my reality and identity. I am in the light. It doesn't just speak to a moment. In the same way, the hating of brother is not going to just speak to a moment, but it's going to speak to the life and reality of a person who doesn't truly know God. And isn't it sad that there are people who say, I I love God and I know him and I I just want to walk with him. and, And they're so self-deceived that they think they can know him while having no love for people. It's almost like the differentiate. They they think it's possible to love God while not caring for or loving other people. Here's what I would say. The most practical way to love God is to love people made in his image. So if you're going to say, I love God, but I hate the people he made, it's like, really? Because God takes that personally. Like, those are people made in His image. And so you can't hate the, the, the beauty, and I would say, like, as image bearers of God, um, we are obviously sourced in and come from God as His creation. And so, as His creation, you think it's possible to hate on what He's created while loving Him? Um, it's not possible. And you'd go, why? Because he takes it so personally. How we treat each other becomes a direct reflection of how we think of God. In other words, and we could spend a long time talking about this eventually, but your view of God directly affects your treatment of people. I could could watch you for the rest of your life. And how you treat people, either lovingly or, or you just, you know, the opposite of loving, and that actually tells me a lot about who you think God is and what you what you believe about Him. It's directly revealed by your love or lack of love for people. So to hate, brother, people made in God's image, and to say I'm in the light, I know God, it's a contradiction. It's a really strong contradiction. Um. But we're going to get more into that when we talk about Cain in chapter 3 and stuff like that. So, I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, in this person who is loving people. Not perfectly, not even consistently, but just it's this life of I'm pursuing a love for people that's responding to God's love for me. Well, in him, there's no cause for stumbling. Which is similar to what he just said about... How the darkness is passing away, which is proven by the evidence of love and sanctification in my life. So, let me take you to John 11:10 as we slowly start to close. I think pa- preachers make the biggest mistake when they say they're closing because it just affects the mental state of the hearers. They're like, oh, finally. And I'm like, actually, I'm not really closing. I'm just kind of keeping you, you know, happy. (laughs) So you listen more. And it has the direct opposite effect. John 11.10 says, if anyone walks in the light, uh, in the night, he stumbles. Because the light is not in him. So light and darkness become um, ways to communicate. Darkness and light become representative of a way of life. Light is living in the in, in obedience to God. Light is loving people. Light is having faith in Jesus. Light is letting the Spirit of God lead your life, right? Darkness is the opposite. Not loving people. Not believing. Not obeying the commands of God. Not following anyone else except your own desires and ambitions and passions and, you know... And so darkness and light become representative of ways of life and realities of existing. Realities of existing. Um, So let me take you to Luke 20 verse 18. And I don't think there's any one way to sum up what John means when he says the light or the darkness. Well, you could say, well, the devil and you got God. Sure. But there's a lot that flows from those two categories. Like lifestyles, ways of thinking, um, um, beliefs, all those different things. Mentalities, worldviews, perspectives. Luke 20:18 says, everyone who falls, well, let's quote this. He looked directly, Jesus looks at the people, the religious leaders he's exposing. He says, what then is this? Quoting um, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone Jesus will be broken to pieces when it falls on anyone it will crush him so what I want you to see is that Jesus becomes what makes or breaks a person's eternity You're either going to stumble over him because he's not what you want and he's annoying and he's in the way and he's in the way of you becoming morally good on your own and he's in the way of you building your own empire and at the end of it all it's going to that's going to fall down and crush you under the weight of judgment or you're going to be a part of um, uh, the the living stones being the people of God who are built on the cornerstone Jesus and he's going to be your foundation those are your two options so whoever loves brother abides in the light the reason I brought those passages up is because he says look the love in a person's life testifies to the light that Christ has brought their soul okay and that person who's believed in the gospel and is born again there's no cause for stumbling. The kind of stumbling I believe John has in mind is the once for all eternal stumbling over Jesus because you reject him and rebel against him. Okay, so Luke 20:18 I already brought that up. Let me take you to Romans 9. It speaks to a stumbling, right? So there are people who see Jesus as in the way of what they really want. And they trip over him. Now, what is this? You know, First Corinthians will tell us that the the Greeks, the intellectuals, they wanted the wisdom and the philosophy. And Jesus didn't give them that. The Jews wanted signs from heaven. And Jesus didn't give them that. They wanted wisdom and power, but defined according to the world. But God gives wisdom and power how he actually defines wisdom and power. Um, which is Jesus. Jesus is wisdom and power personified. From heaven. Uh, so Paul says in Romans 9. Israel pursued a law. That would lead to righteousness. Like they tried to be righteous. By their obedience to the law. And they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue righteousness by faith. In the son. But. They pursued righteousness. As if it were based on works. Isn't it really sad that you can pursue something the wrong way, which will never lead you to that thing? All the while, God's saying, hey, if you just receive it, it's a free gift. And they're like, I don't, it's not a gift. We need to work for it and achieve it and and strain to get there. And God's going, my son did that. It's, you get righteous through faith. But the people who see Jesus as in their way, and they're going, we're trying to be righteous on our own terms. By, by keeping the law and trying to do, be good enough in the sight of God. They see Jesus as in the way. And they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's what Paul says. As it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 118.22 again. But this time it's Paul, not Jesus. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. A stone of stumbling. A rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But Jesus told us that those who don't believe in Christ, don't receive him, don't come to him in faith. Actually, that ends up being their eternal demise. And the stone that they disregarded, just like in Daniel's vision, is going to end up crushing the enemies of God and anyone who also... um, is an enemy of God through rebellion and and unbelief so whoever hates his brother is in the darkness this is not talking about just a a moment of existing this is talking about the um, overall lifestyle and reality of a person who hates their brother and uh, you might say, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another way of explaining that. Because hating, you and I think, is just like having ill will towards someone. Or having murderous intent. Hatred, if it's going to be consistent with being in the darkness, is going to be violating the laws of God. And inadvertently, when you do, there's no such thing as sin that doesn't affect anyone around you. And so to violate the laws of God is not only to show disdain for God and his commands, but it's also to indirectly hurt the people around you, which is to show no concern for them, because I I love my sin and I love my desires and passions, so I'm not going to, I don't really care about my brothers. But there's also that intentional conscious hatred where it's, I have murderous intent and jealousy and envy and and covetousness in my heart. And someone who lives in that darkness of perpetual disobedience to God and a lifestyle of sin, no repentance, hatred for a brother. They're in the darkness. They are. And they walk in the darkness. So that's why I said this is not just about a moment of stumbling into the darkness. This is not, hey, if you believe in Christ and you know you, you momentarily stumble into sin, and oh no, well, guess what? You're now in the darkness and you don't know Christ. That's not what he's saying. This is about a walking like in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor in sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's a progression, right? It's first you're walking with, then you begin to stand and stay with them, and then you just sit there and, and, and take your place. And it becomes a permanent place of re- residency. That's the kind of idea here. Where the life of this person is marked by, um, continual habitual unrepentant sin and darkness. And he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, he's self deceived. There are lots of people who are self deceived and their arrogance and self righteousness blinds them from their own deception. Um, a few verses earlier, John Rees said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So to deny sinfulness and your need for a savior, right? Is to still be in the darkness and you're blinded. You don't know where you're going and you're deceived yourself deceived. And so there is a darkness that blinds a person. So does the darkness come first or does the blinding come first? It's the, the point is them living in darkness is the result of being blind rejecting the gospel, not believing, right? Choosing to reject Jesus and his work. Now, this is where it gets good, and then we're done. We'll, we'll stop at verse 14. So, let me take my sip of coffee, because y'all crazy in the chat. Okay, thank you for uh, silencing that guy, Grogu. I was about to do that. Here's the structure of 1 John so far, so you don't miss it. Starting in chapter 1. The word of life has now been revealed to bring us to the Father. Number two. Now we can have fellowship with God through His Son. Number three. Fellowship with God is living in the light by confessing sin and being cleansed. Number four. When Jesus cleanses someone, His word abides in them. That's proof of the fact that His word abides in them. Number five. Those who abide in Christ and have his word abiding in them and are cleansed, they have an advocate with the Father if they do sin. Number six, how do we confidently know that he really is our advocate? Well, by keeping his commands, by living out the expression of your love and faith in Jesus. And the command of God is to believe and to love God and love people, which is going to be walking in the light of Jesus. To live in the darkness of hatred and sin is to prove you do not know Jesus. And knowing Jesus, as we're about to see here, means you've overcome the evil one and his ways of sin and darkness through Christ. So that, that's that's the, the structure so far. I just summed up a few things. But the point is, all these ideas come together. The word of Jesus abiding in us, walking in his commands, keeping his commands, right? And staying in the light and believing in the sun and loving God and loving people. All those ideas go together. Contrasted with that is those who live in the darkness, hate brother, uh, disobey the gospel, disobey the commands of God, have no desire to live in the light, right? They're self-deceived. They're blinded. They're stumbling over um, Christ. Here's the last few verses, and then we're done. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. So if you were to ask John, I'm out of water. If you were to ask John, hey, why did God forgive my sins? He would say, well, for his name's sake. His name's sake. Isn't that interesting? That God so honors the Son and so loves the Son that it's for the sake of His own honor and glory and majesty that He extends forgiveness to anyone who would look to Him in faith. God honors those who look to His Son because He so honors and esteems and exalts His Son. So when we talk about forgiveness, this is part of um, what we need to understand. Is the reason God forgives us is not because of our own ability to live obedient. The reason we're forgiven is not because of anything we bring to the table. God doesn't look at our obedience and go, oh yeah, I'll forgive you. God doesn't look at our, you know, our, our good works and efforts and our, our religious zeal and our knowledge and and all the, our education and go, oh, that, you know, that's pretty good. I'll forgive you. He looks at His Son, and He says, since you've believed in Him and taken refuge in Him, I've decided anyone who finds themselves in My Son, I will forgive them because of His name's sake, that which essentially is the Father's name's sake. When we keep that intact, the reason God forgives, it, it it helps you frame up works the right way so that now my ability to walk in the light is not going to affect whether or not I'm forgiven or tomorrow or the fact that I walk in the light is actually affected by the fact that I've been forgiven first. In other words, forgiveness and identity precede obedience and walking in the light. First I believe, then I'm brought into the light, given a new identity and a status and I'm declared forgiven. Now I go and obey because I'm doing it from a place of being forgiven and having a solid identity in Christ. So this is not, hey, live in the light so you can stay forgiven. This isn't, hey, do a bunch of stuff and obey hard enough so that you can maintain your salvation. I don't believe that's what he's talking about because there's two realities. Someone who walks in the light. Someone who walks in the darkness. You either know Christ or you don't. You're either born again or you're not. You either have eternal life or you don't. You either believe or you don't. And so I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty clear that God looks at us and says, I will forgive you of all your sin. Because my son has paved the way for that. Because I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Like just so you know, it's our advocate. It's our defense attorney, the one who mediates the new covenant on our behalf as the perfect resurrected human. He is the reason we are forgiven. So he is the reason we stay forgiven. And if you want to disagree and go, oh, hold on. You know, how much do works play into when it comes to works? Just think of it as fruit evidence, witness to faith. It's not the reason you're saved. It's not the root of your salvation. Faith in Jesus is, and the proof of faith is going to be someone who has been forgiven and lives differently. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He already talked about that, Jesus. I'm writing to you young men. And honestly, I don't know. I don't know... Why, or if he's even calling out different people here, you know, is he talking uh, to the same people and using different titles for positions they hold possibly? I don't really know. He's talking to children, fathers, and young men. Maybe those are physical or spiritual age groups in the communities he's writing to. But I would say, no matter what, what he says about each of them is not just for the individual person he calls out or type of people. In other words, the forgiveness here isn't just for the the children. It's for even the fathers and young men he's talking to. Because he says, fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Well, to know God, which is the one who's from the beginning, is to be forgiven. If you know him intimately, have a friendship through faith then yes, you are forgiven. That's part of your relationship with God. Eternal life is knowing Him. Or I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Well, to overcome the evil one is another way of saying, I know God and I know the Son and I'm grafted into them through faith and I'm forgiven. And we overcome the evil one, not by our efforts, not by our straining, but by the Son. And you would say, and by the word of our testimony, but it's about the Son. First John 5, and I, I really hope you see the emphasis on Jesus. Hummel says, Your fresh cup of tea, Master Jason. Thank you. Jarvis. 1 John 5, verse 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I thought the world is something to love. I thought we're supposed to love the world. Doesn't God love the world and He calls us to go and love the world? The world here, John is going to use it consistently to refer to that way of thinking, that system, ideology that is opposed to God and his truth and his gospel. So when we talk about the world being something to overcome, he's not talking about the people. People aren't my problem. Ephesians 6 tells us very clearly our warfare is with the spiritual invisible, you know, It's it's spiritual and invisible in nature. The world and the people in the world are two different things. The world here is a system, a way of thinking, a spirit, you might say, that is of antichrist, of antichrist. That's why first John's going to talk a lot about the spirit of antichrist because the world is that way of, I mean, think of Babylon. Think of just that way of thinking that is opposed to God in unbelief and rebellion and rejection. But those who are born of God overcome that. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who overcomes the world except the one who believes? What's being emphasized here? The Son? Jesus? Without Him, I want to make this really clear. Without Jesus, you have no victory. Without Jesus, you have no forgiveness. Without Him, you have no cleansing, no new heart, no new spirit, no new mind, no new nature. Without Him, you have no right standing with God. Without Him, there is no eternal life. What makes our faith valuable and what makes our believing valuable and matter is who we're believing in and what God says about when we believe in Him. So God says, if you believe in my son, he says, I will honor that with all this. It's called the salvation package. It's called the inheritance of his people. Our faith, the faith in and of itself, doesn't amount to anything unless God determines it to be so. And God says, the object of your faith is my son for righteousness. When you believe in him, okay, you overcome the world because of his victory. His victory applies to you. And you go, Victory? When did Jesus? Um, when did Jesus overcome the world? Or have victory over the world? Well, Jesus says in the upper room, I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Calling a shot. Death and resurrection is about to take place. The ascension to heaven to mediate a new covenant is sign of his finished work and his victory over sin, his victory over death, his victory over darkness and human evil, and frankly, the devil and the whole kingdom of darkness. He has conquered. It's finished. He's overcome what you and I never could on our own. And you either trust in him to have his victory or you don't. And he's willing to share his victory with you. Because he wasn't trying to win something he lacked. His victory is achieving something you and I lacked. And he's just the perfect human representative to do it all for us on our behalf. To mediate a new covenant between us and the Father. Colossians 2.15 it says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now you might think those are people. Doesn't seem to be so. They seem to be spiritual forces. Who? There's a hierarchy. There's actually a government in the kingdom of darkness, it seems. So Jesus disarms them, renders them powerless. He puts them to open shame. And he triumphs over them. He triumphs over them. And you go, well, that doesn't say anything about us. Didn't Jesus just say, take heart, I've overcome the world? And you, yeah, but, you know, that doesn't say we've overcome the world. I showed you in 1 John 5. But just to be clear, Romans 16, verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who is the archetype. Like, the like if, if there's anyone who best represents this world system of rebellion and unbelief, it's the adversary, Hasatan, Satan. Is the one who is the ruler and holding this world under sway and influencing the world system opposed to God. So not only do we overcome the world and the system and sin and death and darkness, we overcome the devil himself and God. God is going to crush Satan under our feet by the grace of Jesus which is with us. Isn't that crazy? So when John tells... His audience, hey, I'm writing to you to remind you. You've overcome the world through Jesus. You've overcome sin, darkness, death, human evil. You've overcome it all because of him. Your faith in him is what gives you access to all that he's won. Your forgiveness is part of that for his name's sake. You know God through the Son. Jesus is the way back to the Father. So now, that's why we can live in the light and love brother. Because the word of God abiding in us that we've received has actually brought us into all that we have. Forgiveness, relationship with God, victory over all darkness. And he goes, I write to you children because you know the Father. Does John want his people, or the people he's writing to, to be confident that they know God? Like, is it is it presumption and arrogance to say, I'm forgiven. I know God. I have overcome the evil one. Is it, is it presumption to say that? Or is that just taking God at his word? Now, make sure there's no arrogance, pride, or self-righteousness attached to that. But yes, if you believe in the Son... You are forgiven. And John wants you to know. Like if you believe in the Son, you know God. If you believe in the Son, you've overcome the evil one. It's not prideful or or presumptuous to say that. There's, There's a necessary level of confidence and security and assurance the believer should have. And is inviting us into that so that we would live in the light. He says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. Let me seal this all up until we have our next session in First John on Monday. All these ideas are connected. Knowing the Father. Being strong. The Word of God abiding in us. And overcoming the evil one. They're all connected. We're strong because of who we know. We're strong because of what He supplies us and what He's actually filled us with through His Word. We're strong because of the victory he extends to us over the enemy. Notice how none of this has to do with what we bring to the table. Notice how none, nothing that we bring to the table is what's in mind here. It's what does Jesus bring to the table. If anything, we bring faith. And it opens the door into all that Christ has made accessible to us. So, I want you to see the connection between your strength as a child of God and how that connects to God's Word abiding in you. Which, by the way, that does happen the very second you believe. The Gospel takes up residency in you. But also, understand, there is a daily need to be filled with um, a daily revelation of God in His Word. I need a daily, fresh revelation of God in His Word. I need to know Him. I need the Word of God to abide in me daily. I need to get that Word in me. I need that seed to be planted. I need, like David says, to store up His Word in my heart. And that directly relates to my strength in the battle. And it doesn't make me overcome the evil one any more than I already have in Christ. I think that what the Word of God does, abiding in us daily, as we seek for that Word to be stored in our heart, is it actually makes us more aware of the victory we have victory we have in the Son over the devil, in sin and death. We just need to be reminded of that victory so that we can walk in it, and we're reminded when we read the word and know Jesus better in the scriptures. So this is not read your Bible so you have more victory. You have ultimate victory in Christ. If you're talking about the daily battle against sin and your flesh, sure, you're more likely to experience daily victory in those smaller battles, the more the word of God is filling your heart. So you can distance yourself from the scriptures. You can can choose not to spend time with God. You can choose not to have any private time with him and and not invest into your relationship and not have a prayer time. You can do that. Don't expect to be strong in the middle of warfare. And you go, sure, I'm not strong, but I still have victory in Jesus. Sweet. What does that do for you now, though, if you're not enjoying and actually walking in that? so all i'm saying is all these ideas come together we have an advocate we have a victor we have a champion we have a righteous one who will never change never be rejected his work is irreversible but how do you know you know him how can you be confident that you're forgiven that you know the father that you have eternal life that you've overcome the evil one how can you be confident that the word of god is actually filled and taken up residency in your heart Do you see evidence of you walking in the light? Do you see evidence of sanctification? Evidence of growing holiness? Evidence of of a growing conviction of sin? uh, Growing change in desires? A growing desire to know God and, and, and love the things of God? And love for God's people? Do you see growing evidence of those things? If not, maybe you're still in the darkness. That's just the bottom line, man. Maybe you're still in darkness because if faith doesn't translate into the practical material world through my life, is it really, really active? Have I really received it? If seed is planted, won't it bear fruit? I think it will. I think it will. Well, guys, here's a quick outro. If you guys don't know, this is above reproach ministry. Go to above reproach ministry.com to find everything we have. All the free resources we have. We have free study devotionals, free online Bible study courses, free Bible study workshops. We have a free open Discord community where we have times of prayer and Bible studies together and gatherings around the scriptures. If you're looking for godly community online, come and join. Um, I have a book. It's titled Fruitful. It's right here. I don't know why it's chewed up. This is my sister's. You can get your copy on Amazon or on my website. It's the essential keys for living the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. Um, you can give to this ministry. I have a wife and two kids who I really have to take care of. And all this content, all these resources to the church are free to everyone around the world because of generous supporters like you. And so thank you guys who financially support this ministry. This is my full-time job to support my my wife and two kids and to get the word out and to build the church. And so if you want to give, you can give on the website, uh, just straight from a credit card or debit card. You can give through Cash App, PayPal or Venmo, Um, You can give on a monthly basis through Patreon, and I've, you know, given you reason to become a monthly supporter through Patreon. You get exclusive access to all these benefits. You get discounts on our merch. You get a free copy of my book depending on what tier you sign up with. Um, You get all, all my teaching notes I use for these sermons completely free to you. Use them however you want, you know. So I'm trying to make it worth it for you guys to give on a monthly basis, whether it's $5, $20, $100, whatever you can do. That's what makes this ministry go, is that God is supplying what we need. God is taking care of us through you guys. So thank you. And I think that's it. Go visit AboveApproachMinistry.com. And I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus, guys.